welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and I hope you're all doing well as we move towards this Labor Day weekend. So I've been doing this show for over five years now, and this is episode 257. It's a pleasure to do this show and to get to know a small slice of the people that make up primarily the percussion world. In that five years' time, I've interviewed people getting started, just starting out, in the middle, and towards or at the end of their career. But this week marked a first for this show, one that I guess was inevitable, but one that did not really even come into my mind until it happened. On Sunday morning, August 29th, 2021, just prior to doing an interview, that will appear in the near future. Previous podcast guest and longtime Texas Tech percussion professor Lisa Rogers announced on her Facebook page that her former teacher and longtime colleague at Texas Tech, Alan Shin, passed away on Sunday. And no surprise, the outpouring of memories and stories of Alan's warmth and humility, and everything else was immediate. In full disclosure, I did not know Alan all that well, but I do know a lot of his students, some of whom have been friends and colleagues for a long time. All of the ones that I knew found him to be a really important part of their life and frequently commented on his teaching philosophy, his humor, and his warmth. And that came through when I got the chance to interview him for this podcast in 2017. Once I found out about Alan Shin's passing, it immediately came to me to re-release the episode that I had him on. This has been the way that a couple of other shows that I've mentioned as influences have honored guests they've interviewed when they've died, most notably Mark Maron's WTF podcast and the Bill Simmons podcast. Because I've decided to re-release this episode, I've treated it as if it was new. In this particular instance, I dug into my archives and found the original video of the interview that was recorded over Skype, put it back into GarageBand, and did a brand new edit for it. I think it stands as a really good conversation. Alan's charm, humor, kindness, warmth, and ability to tell great stories are on full display here, and I hope that you enjoy getting to hear them, either for the first time or again after many years, as I did when I was editing. A couple of notes specific to this episode. By happenstance, this interview was recorded four years to the day that I am talking to you right now, September 1st, 2017. Secondly, Alan's computer was acting up during the interview. So if you hear some background noise, this is the fan to Alan's computer that is running on and off as he's speaking. There's not much I can do about it, but you will encounter it. Three, this came at an unusual time personally for me, as it marked one month from when I started teaching again at Mizzou in the role of assistant teaching professor and assistant director of athletic bands. This is relevant 
because Allen spent much of his life in Columbia, Missouri, and went to Mizzou for undergrad, back before there was much of a welcome and dedicated space for percussionists. And you'll hear more about that in the interview. His connection is strong to Mizzou, and you should be able to get that sense. Fourth, for the sake of highlighting this specific conversation, you will not hear from me again on the other side of the interview. So once Alan and I conclude our conversation, you'll just hear the transition music to the end. Lastly, I want to make sure that I send my heartfelt condolences to the surviving members of Alan's family, his friends, his colleagues, his former students, and the greater Lubbock, Texas community. We've lost a great one. And I hope you all find peace in the upcoming weeks and months. Okay, here's my conversation with Alan Shin from 2017. Alan, you are already greatly missed. Okay, yeah, yeah I got plenty of former students to talk about, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's awesome. I've had a lot of them on. I know it. That's cool. Yeah. Alan, tell me about getting the job at Texas Tech and where you were before then and the process of getting the job, state of the program, et cetera. As you may or may not know, um, when I left Mizzou, I did my master's at Tech. Mm-hmm. Um, you may or may not. I don't know that. if I knew that, that part. I just gotten married in June, and so I'm going to take you back a few years before. So okay. um, I, I stuck around Mizzou for a semester and took some grad classes and mm-hmm. did a real cool thing where we had a Chancellor's Festival and played Elijah under Otto Werner Mueller. And then I um, applied for five or six schools and got into all of them, but the best TA offer was from Texas Tech. Okay. And I knew Ron Dyer. He had taught at Mizzou, and he taught me in high school. And so I had TA offers from um, Tennessee and Tech, um, F. Michael Combs, mm-hmm. another Mizzou guy that before Ron. And my chairman at Mizzou at the time, Charles Emmons, I don't know, he's probably passed away before you got involved with uh, Mizzou. He was a great guy. He, he told me if he had a son, he'd want him to study with Ron. Oh. And my wife knew Ron, <clears throat> so off to Tech we went. Mm-hmm. And I um, did my master's here, and it was um, a good two years. Ron was having some trouble. We'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. And then when I graduated, I um, got in the finals of the UTA job, <clears throat> um, Arlington. Um, okay. did, not, did not get the job. Um, Larry Ratcliffe did. Uh, he's a brilliant musician. He's the Rice Orchestra director. Okay. And so I taught high school for a year, and it turned out to be one of the greatest things I've ever done. Um, mm. Yeah. Uh, even though in my own mind I was never going to teach high school, yeah, did and uh, and that was cool and it made me a better college professor and a methods class teacher and and from from that um, I got a couple of college interviews and I uh, accepted one at Southwest Texas State, which is now called Texas State, and I went there and okay. taught there for two years, which was a great two years and. Um, 
And so in Lubbock, my wife put me through my master's here when I was at Texas State. I put her through her master's mm. in um, choral education there. Okay. And so it was a great two years. Got to play in the Austin Symphony and, you know, had really good students and a really good band program. And then uh, I got a call. And it's a kind of a bitter, sweet, sad story about how I came back to Tech. Um, so my first year at Tech, I was really hired by their band director, James Suttoth, okay. who is a fantastic musician. And I got to know him because I hired him to clinic my high school band for contest. And that's where we really connected. Um, even though we had talked some band camps together, I didn't really know him, and I've heard, it, I've heard about him. So... After my first year at San Marcos, Jim Suttoth was hired back at Tech. Um, so when I left my high school job at Lubbock Monterey, um, there were two directors at Monterey. Keith Bearden, who was my head director there, went to Texas Tech to be the marching band director. The second year at San Marcos, Jim Suttoth, who was the director of bands at Texas State, came to Tech. And... In the spring of 82, I got a call from my old teacher, Ron Dyer, who was at the dean's office, resigning. Mm. Basically, he had a major alcohol problem and um, was asked to resign after nine years. He, he was a tenured associate professor. Wow. And so I was invited to apply by my band director colleagues. Um, and... That happened, you know, my audition was late June. Okay. And I got the job, you know, a week or so after that. And I came back to teach band camp. And then in August, I got a call that my old professor had died in his home. Alcoholism, mm. he was 36 or 7. Oh my very gosh. sad. Very sad. Um, because he was a great guy and a great musician who had a problem. Yeah. So... But that's how I came to Texas Tech, and that was 1982. Yeah. Just one brief thing about about Ron. Was it clear to you, like, did you know, like, when you found out that, it, however you found out that he resigned, were you like, I bet I know why, or what happened? I mean, was it oh, was it known? Or, oh, it was known. In oh. fact, when I came to Tech for my master's, the students couldn't figure out why I came to Tech. Mm-hmm. All his studio people. Yeah. They were grateful, and because he was having a hard time doing his job, I got to do a lot, mm. you know, during my master's. I got to be involved with a lot of teaching and mm. organization and administration of the program. It worked out well for me um, for that reason. It was a good school of music. I got to do studio work in town. Yeah. Played with good jazz groups, played with the Lubbock Symphony. It was all great experiences for me, but I felt really bad. For Ron, sure, yeah, wow. and and really, there was not much um, to do to help. You know, yeah, people had tried to intervene, all that. So, yeah, I mean, and, and as you know, and, and you know, from doing this for a while, you know that if it gets to that point where he's been asked to resign, it's 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 because they've every other step hasn't. It hasn't worked. Yeah, and what was so sad when he called me, I can remember Southwest Texas. I, you know, we had to take a call in the office, and he was sober. Mm-hmm. And he told the dean he'd resign if they'd hire me. Of course, they couldn't do that. 
right. you know, they had to open it up and have a search and I had to come play an audition and do the whole thing. Yeah. But, um, that yeah, was very touching to me. Um, but anyway, it's just life and, um, there are lessons to be learned and I share that with my students sometimes when they may be partying too much and yeah. <clears throat> so are when you start working there, how old are you, first of all? Uh, I was 28 <clears throat> when I started the tech, yeah. Did you feel like, okay, I, I, could you tell that you were in a different position than you were as a master's student, even though you were doing a lot of teaching? Or did it still uh, feel like you were almost like an, a grad student again? No, they accepted me as a, as a colleague. I was a tenure-track assistant professor and um, I'd already done so much performing with the faculty. We were, we were friends. We played in the Roswell, New Mexico Symphony, and yeah. we were out there. So I knew the applied faculty well, and um, they were they were happy to have me back and all that. So it felt it felt fine. Yeah, I was the young guy for sure, and I felt like the young guy for yeah. years. For yeah. years, I was the young guy. Yeah, it's like Alan. It's like you mean Alan. That's who. Yeah. <laughs> Ow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How long were you there before um, before Lisa came in? She came my second year at Tech. Okay. Yeah. As a master's student, right? No, no, as an undergrad. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. She came as an undergrad. Yeah, I'd had her as a freshman at Texas State. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, yeah, she she came up during my second year. Okay. There were a handful of students that um, transferred for various reasons, you know, so sure. me, you know. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, of course, when you hire an applied person, you expect some students to come with you. That's kind of why they hire somebody. Yeah, sure, yeah. Dur- throughout the whole time, did they, was there any inclination, suggestion about getting a terminal degree? No, at Tech, uh, a master's, we have many master's um, in performance degrees that are considered terminal and still today. Okay. Yeah, and that's the way it is at, big, at bigger schools. I, I still find out, you know, like Michigan, et cetera, you don't even need a degree. You've been in the symphony a long time. Or, but in perf- uh, conducting here and in applied, it's still that way. Now it's changed quite a bit because of the flood of um, DMAs in the market. I mean, sure. now it's almost always DMA preferred. Right. You know, when I was getting into the business, it was not that way. Mm-hmm. It was definitely um, a master's considered terminal degree. It, it gets questioned once in a while, but yeah. I never have a problem with that. Do so I considered going on mm-hmm. um, to Michigan? I was a friend of my Dow's and mm-hmm. I considered that, but the, the, it would cost. I had kids, I had a wife, and a job, and I already had a good job. Yeah. You know, so I just decided. Not to get that doctor. And it sounds like no pressure from administration to get it. I had no pressure at all. Nope. Yeah. Well, then don't do it. <laughs> and we graduated five or six DMAs from here. So, yeah. um, of course, Lisa has the doctorate. And right. so she, um, we, we co-chair the committees and mm-hmm. she signs the papers, you know. It's all, it all works out. Yeah. <laughs> um. How were facilities when you started teaching there versus now? Oh, they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> and that, and we're in a big campaign right now. Yeah. Building because I don't know. I was at a Friends of Music fundraiser last night that I. Oh yeah. 
but I actually had to lead because um, our director's out of town. Um, and uh, we're, we're doing it in a number of phases, but the uh, theater department has pretty much been funded. They were first on the list and the next, and it's like, it's gone over well over $100 million now for the building. I don't know what it is. Sure. But um, I may never see it, you know. <laughs> uh, when I was in grad school, um, facilities were worse. The percussion was in a barracks building, like a temporary military barracks. And then in 82, 80, or 81, 82, they built a new part, and that's where we are today. We basically have a building that um, is in three different eras, mm. 50s, 40s and 50s, 70s, and early 80s. Mm. And we're busting at the seams. You know, we don't have office space for the faculty, and well, you, you guys are familiar with that. Oh, yeah, have, for sure. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're full up, um, and we just make do. Yeah, your uh, your building hasn't hasn't made it out of the first uh, Reagan administration, is what you're saying. Yes, this is correct. Yeah. Yes, first so. Reagan. <laughs> you know, being at the same school for so long, I mean, how has it felt transitioning roles? How has it felt seeing colleagues retire and leave, and new ones come in? I mean, what's that? Just kind of being and being, I would say the uh institutional memory what's that been like yeah i think it's great um you know there's never been a day Pete, where i haven't been excited to come to work whether it's new colleagues new students the um energy you get from all of that you know we have i don't know 57 full-time faculty 550 majors Mm -hmm. um our last two years of freshman class has been 100 new freshman majors so we're up about 15 over the previous couple of years, mm. um, we're sitting there, you know, it's just, it's busy and exciting. And, um, you know, uh, there, we have five or six new colleagues this year that I'll get to know and new students that I'll get to know. So yeah. that's all exciting. And, um, you know, one of the things that I see is when somebody retires and even if you were a close friend, it's hard to keep in touch. Yeah. Um, because you're on this, you're on the schedule here at Tech. And they're off doing their thing, and you're, they may come to the concert, they may not, and um, mm-hmm. it's hard. You know, we miss them. You know, we had a long time uh, associate director of graduate studies that I worked with for my whole career in various, I one of our few professors, and he just retired after 44 years. Yeah. And um, so I miss him, and I'll, you know, I'll have to try to make the time to check in. When you were, when Lisa got brought on, was was that a function primarily of you just, there was way more for you to handle? Oh, yeah, way more. Um, in 85, in 84, I started the summer jazz program. Okay. I've been very involved wherever I've been, including West Junior High, where I student taught the mm. jazz. You know, I always always played in the big band at Mizzou all four years. We had a professional big band in Columbia yeah. that I was in in the late 70s, and I did the big band at Southwest Texas. Mm-hmm. Came to Tech, I was strictly hired as percussion professor, and, you know, that was full-time, obviously. Yeah. I was in the drum line, teaching the students, doing the methods, classes, the ensembles, you know, it was plenty, plenty of work, but I missed being in front of wins. Mm-hmm. So in 84, I started the summer program with students, and my friend who was doing, he had just had enough of being a jazz director, and 
between the students and him, they invited me to be the director of jazz studies in 85. Mm-hmm. So I took it on. That's basically like two full-time jobs. Right. And I did that for three years, and then I could not maintain that. Yeah. It was still two full-time jobs, even with another profession teacher. And so I went to our chair, and we hired um, Greg Coyle. Mm-hmm. And he taught here with me for three years. He was a Michigan grad and a WT grad. I think Alan Teal mentioned him. Yeah. He was school at WT. And um, he did a great job for us. And he went on to be a freelancer in Santa Fe. And he still is there where he does. He plays in the opera. He's the personnel manager for the opera. And he's also timpanist at the Sarasota Opera and personnel manager. And he lives in Italy the other half of the year. Um, and then after that, Lisa, who you know was one of my most conscientious students in my history, history, really, and you could count on her always yeah. to be there, take care of business. Yeah. Um, she had graduated, or almost graduated, she was ADD at OU, and they had hired her full-time for a year, and so I invited her, it was a non-tenure track, instructor, very low pay, just what we paid everybody. Um, people were grateful for college experience, and so she came back and did that, and then after Oh, I don't know how many years, two or three years, our um, chair turned it into a tenure track position that she had to apply for. Mm-hmm. And that's worked out well for me. Yeah. Uh, was, it, was it nice to see that she had a transition from being your student to now being your colleague? Yeah, it took her a long time to get her to call me Alan. She called me Mr. Shin for about 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to work on that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> that was nice, but get over it, you know. Right. Yeah. And the trenches together. Yeah. It's still hard. I still call my professors. It, I even know. when they've called me, told me to call them by a first name, I'm like, yeah. It's difficult. Yeah, even like my, my high school band director, who you know, John Patterson. Yeah. You know, I called him Mr. Patterson for, you know, ever. He, call me John, please. Call me John. Yeah. It's difficult. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Alan, where did you grow up? I grew up in Kansas City and Columbia. So I, I moved to Kansas City as a kid. I was there until 66 or 7, and I moved to Columbia when my dad took a big job at the university, uh, directing their publications and editor of the Missouri Alumnus Magazine. Oh, okay. So... Yeah, and so I moved there in junior high. Oh, wow. It, we talk, we're talking Kansas City, Missouri part. Yeah, Gladstone, if you're familiar. North, North Kansas City. It's okay. Oak Park High School is where I would have gone had I stayed. Okay. Yeah. Um, were you the only member of your family in the arts? Yes, I was. Yeah. My mom was a pretty good high school musician, and she played piano and flute and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So she was a pretty positive influence musically. My dad loved to listen to big bands and Sinatra and Count Basie, and so that was around the house. But nobody else, I'm the only person to go into the arts. When did you first get the bug to play? You know, in Kansas City, I took piano lessons. I'm the only of the three kids um, that really got into it. I had two great, really great teachers, and they let me play everything, you know, from Brahms and Liszt, Chopin, to theme from Batman, and a lot of boogie boogie. 
And, you know, I did the little recitals, and I enjoyed that, as well as playing sports. I did both growing up. And then I um, dropped piano. When I came to Columbia, I tried to keep taking lessons. I took from a gal at Stevens College, and then I just got into band and football at West Junior High. Um, so piano until I was 14, I got my first drum and when I was going into sixth grade, it was a Kent drum, came out of a catalog, Words catalog or Sears and mm-hmm. I stabbed the drum, one of my artist friends painted on it. <laughs> I've since come to collect Kent drums and I now give them to my drum set players. I had about 25 for a while, I'm down to 20 or so. And oh wow. They're cool drums made in um, Kenmore, New York, they're two-ply maple. Um, various, some are single tension, some are regular double tension. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I started band. Came to Columbia. I was in West Junior High. Mm-hmm. Um, got my first drum set my ninth grade year. Played in the uh, in the stage band with Don Rupp at West. And um, I remember everything we played. <laughs> oh, no, name some. Names uh, for Judy was my big feature, you know, which is kind of funny because I love big bands. I put that in the library for fun. It's like a junior high piece, but it's a cha-cha. Mm-hmm. So if you have your Latin dancers, they enjoy that. And it's got a little two-bar drum solo in there that's kind of fun. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, and then Taiwan Brass. We did a lot of that, too. You oh, know, sweet. Taste and all that. Well, that was my first experience. And then in my ninth grade year, I started putting rock bands together with my buddies. My, you know, we'd run the halls look for guitar players and lead singers. And so I went to Hickman, did the whole band thing, loved it. Had a great experience at Hickman High School. I took some drum set lessons with John Brophy. don't know if you know that name. I know the name. I, I'm, yeah. He's a Mizzou grad. He still is the drum set player for the Starlight Theater in St. Louis. Still. You know, he's been over 40, 50 years doing that. Where Kansas City? Okay, it's not Starlight. What's the one? The Muni? Uh, what's it called? The Muni? The Muni, that's it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Muni. Yeah, he's the drum set player at the Muni. Okay. Well, I took some lessons at Shaw Music with him, went through the Chapin book, went through the Rock and Roll Joel Rothman book. Mm-hmm. That was that. And then I was in all the band stuff at Hickman. We had a great band program. Um, we had a good jazz program. Claude Smith used to bring his original pieces in. We would sight read them for Claude Smith, like Eternal Father, God of Our Fathers, all those pieces, because his little Chillicothe band couldn't read them. <laughs> so that was kind of neat. Um, and we did all sorts of great things. Um, and then I took from Ron Dyer my... Um, junior senior year privately and I was in rock bands since I was 16 I was playing two or three nights a week in Columbia um, covers it, huh cover bands yeah cover bands yeah we played a lot of Beatles Crosby Stills and Nash Santana all sorts of and they were really great musicians and mm-hmm. I call that my street learning and I still think it's important for you know, students to have the experience with people that don't read music. You know, front porch playing is really important. So I did that. Went to Mizzou. I majored in philosophy in pre-law my first year. Mm-hmm. 
And but I continued to take lessons. And I remember, you know, pretty much what I played, played in the percussion ensemble. I actually played in about five or six ensembles as a non-major mm. at Mizzou. And that was, and Ron Dyer was still there. And I made my first C's in class that for my freshman year. I never made a C. Mm-hmm. And so I was not going to the library to read philosophy or my logic or any of that. I was practicing. I was in the practice room. I was in the ensembles. I was gigging. Mm-hmm. And so when Lassenheiser came, I thought, okay, I'm going to be a music major. And I made the, made the switch and never looked back and it's been a great career. So something that's uh, going back, something that you, you, did you say you played football? I did my ninth grade year. Yeah. I oh, was yeah? small. They I was beat up. They asked me to go after the team in Hickman. I said, nope, I'm going band full steam ahead. And now with all this brain injury stuff, I'm so glad I didn't play in high school. Yeah. I just played one year. I was third string wing back. You know, I was a little kid. Uh-huh. But it, yeah, it was one year was enough. Was <laughs> you don't, you don't remember a, a, a favorite, uh, a, a favorite run or. Did you somebody oh, I, just like nail you at some point? You're like, all right, that's cool. Yeah, I remember um, kind of waking up and seeing stars, and the coach was looking down at me and goes, "Hey, Shin, did they ring your bell?" Oh yeah, I said, "Yeah, they did." <laughs> anyway, he wasn't very sympathetic. No, you know. he's probably like, yeah. "Hey, welcome to the club," or something. You know, exactly. sadly. Yeah. No, I, I got leveled many times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You said you're playing in bands, you're playing in rock bands, and, and you're you're playing, you know, Beatles and, and Santana and Crosby, Stills and stuff like that. How are are you just are you doing the thing where you're sitting in front of a radio, like it would come on and you like run to your drum set, or did you have like the eight tracks or like what was how are you accumulating your your art? Oh, uh, it was all LPs in those days. Yeah, yeah. Just drop the needle on record copies, you know. We'd get together and rehearse, and I learned early on, because I was more trained than most, that I could learn faster. Mm-hmm. And finally talked to him, and I said, when you guys get these tunes learned, call me in, and I'll add the drum parts. And so I did the rock band thing for three years, and then I um, got into a good jazz quintet, and that was probably my junior year, and I played five nights a week at the Flaming Pit. Mm. It was a restaurant in town, and I played with Alan Beeson, who you probably know, and mm-hmm. there was a great guitarist, Lyle Harris, and, and a really good saxophone woodwind guy. And anyway, that was a great experience, and so I did that until I moved to Lubbock. I know you left fairly young, Kansas City, but did you get to know any of the of the scene there? Did you know about the history of Kansas? Okay. Oh, I, oh, oh, yeah. I taught jazz history one summer here, two summers. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I've always known about the history of Kansas City with, you know, Charlie Parker and Basie and you know those legendary people and, and a lot of the more obscure ones as well. Kevin Mahogany, who just moved back, is a great jazz singer. Yeah, yeah. Kansas City is fantastic. I, I, I was thinking, did you know that when you were growing up? Um, no, I mean, I was 10 or 11 when I moved. Sure. I was 11 when I moved to, I wasn't that, no, I did not know about that until later. Yeah. Were you like student government? Were you doing, like, were you doing any, like anything non-musical as well? Or was it just like music and then music for career and that was what you were doing? 
growing up? Well, school, I was in, you know, National Honor Society, Key Club, those kinds of things. But mostly music, you know, I, I played in the big musicals, I would set an orchestra, mm-hmm. I was in concert band, jazz band, and um, then I had my outside band. Yeah. And so I was busy. So I didn't do, you know, that much extracurricular. Just, I think, Key Club, National Honor, Honor Society, music. Someone, but what, what, what does Key Club do? <laughs> it's a service organization, and I, I, all I remember is cleaning up the stadium after a football game. That's all I can remember, you know, to cut the trash. But you probably did something else. I don't know. <laughs> Fond memories, maybe not. It looked good on the. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of friends in it, so I joined it up. You know. <laughs> when you decide to go, when you go to undergrad, do you, are you do you know you're like I'm going to Mizzou, or was that? Was like was that just no? I you know I knew if I was going to be a lawyer, I wanted to go to Mizzou. I had uncles that were big time lawyers in Kansas City, and I was going to you know follow in their footpath. You know, I was going to mm-hmm. go to Mizzou, go to Mizzou Law School, join their firm. Their name was on the door, you know, yeah. big firm. And there was actually, um, I, in fact, I have a couple students right now that are majoring in Bachelor of Arts, and they're going to go to law school. Mm-hmm. And, and so I tell them my story, which they find fascinating. Um, and my daughter's a lawyer, you know, okay. and uh, she always, you know, she did that for me, I guess, you know. <laughs> um, but there, there was a um, sitcom in the early 70s called Kaz, K-A-Z. Okay. And it was about a lawyer by day and a jazz drummer by night. That was the premise. And that's who I was going to be. That, <laughs> You're going to be Kaz. <laughs> I'm going to be Kaz, you know, but that show lasted a year and so did my law career. You know? <laughs> so we could just blame the show for not being, for you not being a lawyer with a jazz career. Yes, you can blame the show and my lack of attending the library. Right. No, yeah. That's that's a detail, Alan. That's, that's not a small a, detail, yeah. That had nothing to do with it. Um, so once I was at Mizzou, you know, um, and I still had my bands and I started making, you know, I made friends in the ensembles and, um, you know, it felt good. And Lassenheiser was such a guru. I mean, he built up a big program. And this is something that um, I think I told Julia this mm-hmm. on a visit, but I was so lucky with, with um, we called him Mr. L at the, those days. So he built it up where he had 25 majors in about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And he was doing the marching band and um, the basketball band and mini mizzou and all that. Yeah. So he hired, he went to Charles Emmons, our chair, and he hired me to be an undergraduate teaching assistant in my junior year. Wow. I had, I had a second percussion ensemble, which was really pretty good. We did you know, a lot of good stuff. And I taught 12 students wow. that signed up for lessons. And I taught in that little uniform closet down in the basement of Jesse. Hmm. Uh, and then it, the program grew, and they hired Kevin Lepper to be the second undergrad TA, and he had the third percussion ensemble, which was just a quintet, I believe, quartet or quintet. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and but it was like great experience. And so on my junior recital, I conducted um, a percussion ensemble. I remember I did Paul Creston's Ceremonial, and that was part of my junior recital. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Taught a number of, of students, and, and so that was a great experience for me moving on to my master's and to teaching college. Yeah. I mean, how did they 
make that work? Did they was I'm just trying like and because of thinking of what a grad TA would get, like what? Oh, I got no money, Harley. I got three hundred a semester. I was not on a music scholarship. Okay. You know, and I thought that was pretty cool, but you know that was seventy four probably. Maybe that was good money then, but uh, <laughs> it was a great experience, and and I uh, really enjoyed it. Yeah. I knew I wanted, then I started realizing there was a long time when I wanted to play full time. Of course, Mizzou didn't have but a music ed degree. Yeah. And, but I, I tried to approach my lessons and, you know, I wasn't always the greatest practicer, but towards the end, I was putting in, you know, the 46 hours a day outside of everything else. Um, and so, you know, there was a time when I wanted to play full time, be it orchestral or drum set. Mm-hmm. But when I got married, um, I didn't want to be on the road, didn't want to do all that. Yeah. And the one summer that I went to St. Louis to take lessons with those guys, instead of the excerpts, after I practiced excerpts 46 hours a day, I realized I don't want to do that. <laughs> yeah. I don't. You know, I don't want to just be an extra guy and try to win an orchestra job because I figured out what it would take and it would take. I didn't want to give up everything else. And so go, go, this is going to go back a little bit. But who were you who drum set wise were you like, that is what I want to sound like or that's who I'm most impressed by? I kind of grew up in the Buddy Rich era, you know, so um, I saw him live a lot. He did a clinic at Mizzou. He mm-hmm. played little local bar in town one night. Yeah. I went to Kansas City. In 85, my first thing I did when I took the jazz program over was I booked this whole band attack. Mm-hmm. So he was an influence, so I didn't really play like him. He was a big inspiration. Yeah. A lot of the big band drummers. Um, and I was into funk drumming. David Garibaldi was a huge influence on me. Oh, yeah. Um, so and I, I chased Tower of Power all around. Oh, this is, here's, and Harvey Mason, too. Yeah. Here's a good uh, Lincoln University story. Okay. For you. Okay, when I was very young, I must have been a freshman, Lincoln hosted Tower of Power. Oh, nice. Um, this was like the Back to Open record, you mm. know, the first really popular records. And um, so me and my guitar playing buddy broke down. Mm-hmm. We must have gone two or three hundred people there. We were able to get right up and I could just watch David Garibaldi. Yeah. Same thing happened on Herbie Hancock's um, Chameleon album, that mm. very first breakthrough album that had Chameleon and Watermelon Man. They put at LinkedIn. Mm. We went for that. Yeah. It was a small crowd and we loved it. We just, it was so inspirational. So, yeah. But, um, you know, in those days, and I don't think students do it because of the internet, we would meet at somebody's house and play records all night. Mm. And, you know, and I remember skipping lunch for a couple of days so I'd have two ninety nine to go buy a record. We would buy one record a week at a record store, each of our musician friends. And yeah. get the, whether it was a rock album, a jazz album, a funk album, mm-hmm. and we would share that. Yeah. And um, sometimes you struck gold and it was a great record, sometimes you didn't. You just read the album covers and you would read the reviews and hope you got a good record. And I still have my records and play them quite a bit. Yeah. Did, <laughs> so one night, someone, someone picks up Bay City Rollers and you're like, this is the band that's going to conquer everything. I could tell. <laughs> I've never heard of Bay City Rollers of the show, you know. Oh, that's I, the, there you go. That's a, uh, that's uh, Saturday night 
S A T U R D A Y. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess I guess they weren't they were, they didn't make a huge once influence on you. Once I started getting into jazz, like I kind of just focused in on listening to that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I don't think students do that. I I I'd be they should. It'd be great, but. Yeah, I gave the big listening speech a lot. I listen every day to new music, mm-hmm. every, day. and um, it. And once in a while, I stumble on something that really inspires me. Yeah. And then I focus on that. Yeah, that's great. Um, what? So tell me about how they were making facilities work at Mizzou when you were here, or not work? <laughs> oh, it didn't work at all. We, you know, I don't know. Um, when you came to Mizzou, um, but when I was there, all we had was really the Fine Arts Building and Jesse Hall, that was it. And so the percussion um, office was in Jesse. Okay. And so if you're, you know, you go down the stairs and we used to have a little coffee bar on one side, you look the other way. On the right side, down that hall to the right was where both Ron Dyer and Tim Lawson has his office. And before that, there was a restroom and a um, uniform room. Mm. And we had facilities were minimal. And we had one marimba, one vibraphone, one set of timpani. Mm-hmm. You know, a bunch of drums and stuff. Um, Tim convinced a lot of us to buy equipment. So soon, you know, five or six students had Keylon marimbas. Mm. It just, the Windsor model. I bought um, some electric vibes. Okay. Deacon Bonds. and um, we were buying congas and stuff and getting them from the French drum shop and that's where we were going and so we had Jesse where we rehearsed and we practiced in the halls we practiced in the uniform room we even practiced in the restrooms and and we practiced and Tim um, we had a percussion quartet that we put together that toured around the state and um, we would meet 6.30 in the morning sometimes and read string quartets. And that included Norm Rubin. Can you imagine Norm getting up and coming and reading string quartets? You know, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> yes, yeah, hard to imagine. <laughs> and that didn't last too long. And we would, there was like a Coke machine. We'd get an orange soda and put protein powder in it. That was something Lotzenheiser did. We just did that and drank it down and Here's some Mozart, here's some Beethoven, and we would try to read that. But we had put together a little quartet, did a tour. Um, we all had nicknames. Um, my Mizzou nickname was Boogie, because I played Boogie on the piano, hanging out. And they, most of those Mizzou guys still call me Boogie. <laughs> <laughs> or Boogs, or whatever. Right. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, and so we made T-shirts, had our nicknames. We went all over, all over the state. We ended up in Chicago. Went to Frank's, Drums Unlimited, Muscle Factory, Ludwig Factory. Um, that was a big deal for us back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but the facilities were, yeah, they were miserable. And when we had to play a big concert, we did the big train. You know, we I moved so many marimbas up and down those stairs. Mm. Uh, in Jesse, up to the Jesse Hall, back down, or we'd go across the street, we'd stop traffic, it wasn't a pedestrian campus, and <laughs> um, go over to the Fine Arts Building where we had our percussion ensemble concerts. Mm. <laughs> so you, you had a, a, a nicely developed upper body uh, from, yeah. from lifting. 
in, in at uh, Texas State, same thing. I, up and down stairs, and you know, big in for we had we knew exactly what in went first through the doors, and mm-hmm. you know, I'm amazed nothing really happened. We would occasionally almost drop it, and somebody would be holding the marimba, being drugged down the stairs. You know, right. yeah, it's very scary, <laughs> but uh, we made it, and we made it fun. But it it was a huge pain. It would take hours to get there, hours to get back. Right. And is that changed? Uh, you guys have trucks now. They pick up right, the yeah. and make rentals. They have trucks. They there's usually grad assistants have. Uh, you know that's their part of their duty is moving duty. So, um, it's definitely definitely easier. Uh, and obviously, you left before they the percussion had moved into lobe. Which has it's the the hall where all the the percussion and large ensembles are, right? Yeah, yeah. So you you have some of that. It's still a problem, but it's uh, it's definitely better than what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. Those are the old days. Yeah, you're doing all these things with the um, with the bands with the moving. Are you still gigging outside of class like you were? I did that all the way through Mizzou. Yeah. Okay. Because I tell my students, like, one semester I was in six ensembles. Right. Yeah, you said that. was crazy. And, and it, between, um, you know, I was pushing my students to read the outliers. Um, you know, about the 10,000 hour rule. Oh, right, yeah. You now, and, uh, you know, you got to find three years of your life to kind of put the time in. And how many people that did that you're kind of forced to do that. And I feel like there were many days where I had sticks in my hand eight to 10 hours. Um, not by choice, but by, okay, I'm in these ensembles. I got to practice, you know, three to five hours for this, or, um, and I'm going to play four hours tonight. Mm-hmm. And that you get the time in. I think, you know, some of these computer guys, same thing happened to them. Um, yeah. Beatles in Hamburg, they're playing eight hours a day, you know, mm-hmm. Um, so that was really, I look back on it, that was a really um, fortunate thing for me. I was just playing. There's one thing I've gathered so far is that you don't have a doctorate, but you have this enormous experience like before you start working at Texas Tech. Uh, True. Because, yeah. I mean, the fact that yeah. you, you told me that you have an undergrad TA <laughs> it's kind of insane, <laughs> I, I, uh, but I'm very grateful. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm. I was just more of a matter of that. It's like, well, no, no one would have that until they're until they're masters, right? Normally, yeah. yeah. So you're having to learn about the uh, organizing your day for one. Um, you're having to learn. What's that? Oh, I, mean, I, I taught twelve private students in the public schools as well. And I would drive to their homes. And I still keep in touch with some of those kids, too. It's kind of cool. Yeah. I didn't know any better. I mean, um, <laughs> Lassenheiser was huge on work ethic. I mean, yeah. huge. And I grew up in a family that my dad said there's no substitute for work. Mm-hmm. So I had a good work ethic. But when I when Tim got through with us, man, we just we couldn't say no to anything. We just did everything. And. We just and that went on. I finally, in the last maybe ten years, I learned to say no more and cut back. Mm-hmm. You know, but yeah. So I had to be very organized, and he had us fill out 
half hour time sheets, and I still have my students do that. You know, here's a half hour time sheet, schedule it out. And we would even write in our pinball time at Mizzou. We'd go to the shack, you know, so we're, I'm going to practice here, I go to class here, I have an ensemble here. Yeah. Okay, I have a half hour here, let's get together and go shake the machines at the Heidelberg or at the shack. So we would schedule even our um, social time, <laughs> which I thought was really good, because if you don't schedule your free time, you're liable to waste it. Mm. So that's what um, we did, and it worked out. Maybe you just didn't have time to... Uh partake in some uh, substances <laughs> not that you should but I'm just that like drink a beer or two I mean you know Columbia is a big beer drinking town you know is. hours you know but not till midnight sometimes right. you know? yeah no, no you can't get away from that right you know? yeah I'm so again I'm going back here a little bit were you were you someone who all who always had the organizational part kind of as part of your personality were you were, were you someone who who just kind of did everything a lot or did it like just come to you because that was the situation i was pretty organized i'm pretty organized in my head yeah so, though having the schedule in front of me helps you know mm. kind of produce that and so like you know your eight to five schedule is going to be similar you know every week then your evenings are going to be different every week and mm. so yeah, I think I always had a calendar, and I still use hard copy calendars and a couple of planning books, and mm-hmm. not big on putting it into my Outlook calendar and all that. And I do it once in a while, but mostly I, I'm still old school. Mm-hmm. Sit down and look at it. Okay, got to go to this meeting. Here I go. Yeah. Do you have like the rectangular calendar in front of your computer, kind of thing? Uh, no, I have just a small little, you know, um, planning books. You know. Okay. How was the How was the football team when you were at Mizzou? I don't remember it being great. I mean, I I was a huge Mizzou fan in Kansas City, and when Dan Devine was there, in fact, I played football with Dan Devine's kid. Oh, <laughs> and uh, you know, my dad was active with um, covering the sports through his um, journalism um, job. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I got a, Dan Devine gave me a football. I still have it. Um, and back in those days, you know, these are the late sixties. I was a huge Mizzou fan, and I went to school there. I didn't go to a lot. I'd grown up going to the games. I didn't go to a lot of the games. I was gigging in the weekends. But um, uh, the team was, uh, under Dan Devine, was good. And then they had a many, many years of not being good. Yeah. So really, really until Pinkle got yeah. there. And ever since they went to the Southeast Conference, I've kind of lost interest. <laughs> I know you get millions of dollars, but it's just not the same. Right. Know? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's the weirdest thing is the not is the Kansas thing that they don't, they don't play that each other anymore. So weird. That I don't is, know why, what's so hard. Like, yeah, I mean the football is harder to schedule. Like I, I I'll, so I'll grant you that one. Cause there's fewer games. I was like, how hard is it to, to play one game a year in a non-conference in basketball? I don't like, I feel like both sides are being a little bit of a babies about that. I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I have, a, I've had a couple students from KU and, and we keep the rivalry going right here in the building. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, you get it from both sides, from you. I know it, yeah. <laughs> were there any, like, insane Mizzou-Kansas games when you were a student? I can't recall any, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I can't tell you Texas Tech scores from last year. Sure. 
just a handful of games stick out, but I don't remember. I remember at Tech, when Bobby Knight was our coach here, and yeah. my daughter was going to Tech, they were at the game that Tech beat KU and we stormed the arena. Mm. And that was in, I don't know, 2005 or something. It was tremendous. They were ranked, you know, one or two. Bob Knight's team, yeah. Texas team beat them. And that was fantastic. Yeah. Loved it. <laughs> What'd you do for your senior recital? I, because I knew you were going to ask that. I pulled my program. <laughs> nice, good job. I, I heard I heard Teal stumble over his recitals, and so I, you know, <laughs> we called him Too Tall Teal from Tulia. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of alliteration. A lot of alliteration there. It is. <laughs> yeah. I think I was told at the time when there wasn't a recital required at Mizzou when I went to school. I was the first junior percussion recital that they'd had, mm. I think, ever. And that was in 1975. There it is right here. I gave one to Julia once when I came back. And I, again, I did like an hour and a half of music, which was crazy. Yeah, that's um, a lot. <laughs> and so I opened up with Ballad for the Dance by Saul Goodman. Mm-hmm. I teach that piece a lot. I got that from Tom Stubbs because um, he'd studied with Saul Goodman. And yeah. He said, this is a great audition piece and a great yeah. teaching piece. And, and it is. I, yeah. I still, every couple of years, use it. Yeah. Then, then I did Meditation, which is the second movement of the Paul Creston Concerto. Mm-hmm. And um, then I played a sonata for trumpet and percussion by Saron. Saron was huge in the early 70s. You know, half, half of everything we played was by him. And I almost went to San Jose State for my master's with him because yeah. um, he was so big and I'd applied and got in and we talked on the phone and he had no money for TAs and he was kind of adjunct, you know, Yeah. so I didn't go there. Then I did the first movement of the Kirka, which was the hardest thing I did, and um, but I loved it. It was just very, it was hard. <laughs> and I, huh? <laughs> You're like, it was hard. <laughs> And we have a doctoral student going to work on it this semester. He's going to work on it with um, Lisa, who's played it as well. Mm. Then I did a sonata for timpani and piano by Cerrone. I conducted the percussion ensemble by Paul Creston called Ceremonial. I arranged a jazz piece um, for vibes in a small group called To Oliver, To Oliver Nelson by Dan Hurley. And that was it. Yeah. And I remember... Um, being excited about it and it took forever to load in and my recollection is I took one big breath and I didn't breathe the whole concert or swallow (laughs) and then I couldn't hardly talk or swallow or or anything and so ever since then I talked a lot about breathing I think I played a good recital I feel good about it and I put on this massive I had my rock and roll guys recorded because nobody else would and Mm. it's got all sorts of tape Piss and stuff, but I used the, a lot of that stuff for my grad school auditions. Mm. Snap tapes around, you know, so it worked. Yeah. Uh, my bow tie, my big bow tie. Awesome. That choked me out, you know, anyway, but I just. Maybe that's out, why you, you didn't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> it was fun, and, and my um, my girlfriend was accompanying me on piano on one piece, and I remember. Um, 
arguing, I later married her, arguing with her over how to play the quarter note triplets at quarter equal 48 for the crest and mm. slip. Yeah. It was a good time. <laughs> that was great. What do you do after you finish your undergrad? Um, I graduated in December because, and I had 164 hours, by the way, which I thought at the time was big. That was four and a, that was four and a half years. Mm, wow. And, um, you know, Lassenheiser had left. Tom Movenhorst had come. We became good friends. Um, I never really studied with Tom, but we were colleagues and, and um, we hung out a lot, played a lot of duets together. And mm-hmm. he wrote some good stuff. And um, He had a set of timpani that um, he let me use for the um, Elijah concert. So that in that spring, I took electronic music with um, Tom McKinney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, wrote some tape music. Um, and maybe I took another graduate course, and I played in the orchestra where we had the big um, Elijah concert. And then I spent the spring applying to grad schools and planning, helping my wife plan our wedding, which was in June. Mm. And so that was, then I went right from there, and I moved to Lubbock the day Elvis Presley died. I wonder it steeply. Uh, August 16th, 1977. Pretty exciting trip. Um, got here and, um, yeah. Did you have any interest in try- in uh, teaching high school? I did not have any interest at the time. I mean, after I graduated? Yeah, because you have no. mu- this is music ed, right? Your degree? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always plan to use that degree for as a performance degree, mm-hmm. and I treated it as such. Even though I enjoyed my methods classes, and I got you know, good, pretty much good grades for most of the instruments. Um, I enjoyed my student teaching a lot. I always have enjoyed teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lassenheiser was big on making us do clinics and teach. I remember going to Jeff City, having to give a symbol clinic. Mm. Uh, you know, he was always big on, you know, getting us into the education and sharing our knowledge and learning how to talk in front of people and crowds. Yeah. He was great at that. And so, now, my goal, once I was going to get nervous, teach college. That, you know, that was my goal. And so, I you know, I needed a master's. Well, my wife graduated early, and she was a band director, elementary teacher at New Haven Schools in Columbia. Okay. She taught all the band instruments. She taught guitar. She taught elementary music. And so she was into the music education career. Mm-hmm. And when we moved here, she'd never been a choral director, but she was hired to be a junior high choral director. She had perfect pitch and um, had been in the choirs at Mizzou and... So she started that career. And so I've been around teachers. My mom was a teacher in Columbia and a counselor. I think teaching, as, as Tim Lawson has said, teaching is the greatest gig because it just gives so much back to you. Um, and I agree with that. And I could still be teaching in the public schools and be happy. Mm-hmm. I could be teaching elementary school and be happy. Um, my wife, her career ended up at a fine arts magnet elementary where we had after school programs and steel drumming and African drumming, and classic guitar, hip hop dance, on and on. And all, a lot of our tech students and both my kids, we worked in her program after school in, in a lower socioeconomic part of town. It's, it was incredible. 
uh, that school's closed now. Um, but um, yeah, teaching is teaching, and that's what I try to tell my students and their parents. Mm. Once you decide it's music, you have to make that decision. Is this your bug? Is it music? Is this what you have to do? Right. You don't have a choice. Is it, if it's something else, get out because it's yeah. too hard. Too hard. And then, so once you decide it's music, your goal is to make a living at that. And it can be anything, working for Promark, working, you know, in the industry, um, teaching elementary, teaching college, playing gigs. It doesn't matter. Right. If you're doing music every day, you're happy. And so that's how I look at it, and that's what I try to do with my students. And um, it's mostly worked out. What, uh, what, what was was did it feel like a culture shock being in West Texas? It did. I had never played a country western tune in my life. And I, was so, <laughs> I was so worried that you know the hipness of Columbia, there wouldn't be anything hip in West Texas because it got bad press. I mean, Lubbock probably still gets bad, bad press, mm-hmm. and I don't know, but it's not. It's a wonderfully cultural hip town. We're kind of like Austin was 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. There's ton, there's more culture than and I could go on and on about who's been here, who I've seen here, yeah. the artists that have come through, have, have done things for us. So you know, when I was first moved here, I, yeah, I was worried. Um, but early on, I found a good jazz group. The guy owned a studio. He was a great tenor sax player, and I did studio work for him. We had a band called Good Cheap Jazz. He was great players. We were playing great, you know, authentic jazz barbecue joints. And it had a good orchestra that had great guest artists. I played with Doc Severinsen a number of times. He would come and be our guest artist. And, and it, it, you know, Lubbock is really the hub city for West Texas. You know, that's what we're called. And we're the hub. And, you know, the university has continued to grow and um, do well. We're 37,000 students now, I think, close mm-hmm. to 38,000. So it's, it's good. It continues to be good. What did you enjoy more, the dust storms or the um, or the flatness of the land? Well, I don't like the dust storms. Nobody does. Um, when I first came here in the late seventies, there were they were a lot worse, mm. and um, they have since then through agricultural planning. Um, they're maybe five days out of the whole year. So they're not bad and they're not nearly as intense. Mm-hmm. I remember I was in a rehearsal in the barracks building once. We used to host new music um, symposiums and bring in all sorts of great composers. I was rehearsing and I looked outside. I could not see the street. It was completely brown. And that just freaked me out. And you got, <laughs> it, got it in your mouth, got it in your hair. Yeah, Those days are gone, really, pretty much. In fact, we've had a very wet year. Um, and uh, the weather I enjoy it's dry we've been here you know uh, and I'll uh, let's see when you come it's in May yeah. it's starting to get a little warm and stuff but um, yeah you know summers get hot we don't have I miss the falls in Mizzou you know and I miss just the way Missouri smells you know it's just lots yeah. of uh, well it's just you know we don't have the vegetation here you know you can smell a river and all the trees, and if I walk on the Katy Trail, I love that. Yeah, you know, it brings me back to when I was a kid, and I love it. You know, yeah. but I, there's a desert beauty about Lubbock, and the sunsets, and the sunrises, and the freshness of the air, and how every night gets cool, and every morning is cool. I mean, that's and you can have marching band at noon, and um, it may get hot, but 
they're not it's not humid so they're okay yeah what what's it like to be able to see new mexico just like it's just right there <laughs> um you know new mexico is an interesting place i like new mexico it's very laid back i play there uh, i have over my career played there a lot mm-hmm. i was in the roswell symphony i quit that about 15 years ago but then the last 20 years off and on i played in santa fe mm-hmm. so i dropped to santa fe and um how far away are those places well, Roswell's about two and a half, three hours. Santa Fe's five. Okay. You know, half the drive, it's not very pretty, and the other half, it's pretty, you know. New Mexico's a cool place. And Santa Fe, Albuquerque, that area is very artistic, you know, especially Santa Fe, and, and very expensive to live there. Oh, really? I, yeah, I have a number of students that are, not a number, two or three that are there um, mm-hmm. freelancing and have done very well. But, uh, you know, they don't live in the expensive adobes. Lots of movie stars live there and famous musicians. Dave Grusin lives there. He played a concert with my um, orchestra over there once. And um, Eddie Daniels, clarinet player, lives there. Lots of people live there up in the hills. Did you feel any difference from being a master student from being an undergrad student? I did feel a lot of difference. A lot? Wow. How? Yeah. Um, and, and I think it depends where you go, how they treat you. But um, at tech, um, you kind of you know in between faculty and student. But the faculty tend to really give you due respect here, and I think we do the same. Our students, um, I think, get that same respect. Um, we assign quite a bit to them, and they're busy and they're happy doing that. But um, yeah, I felt I felt more you know uh, part of the faculty. Even as a TA, um, I think there's a big jump from undergrad to grad school, how you approach your academics and, you know, your graduate um, theory and musicology courses. And yeah. just, I think there's a big jump of responsibility and um, expectation. Yeah. I hadn't thought about asking this about other, other people, but you've obviously worked with doctoral students a lot over yeah. your time. Uh, is it does it feel weird at all that because you're you don't have to have that degree to work with doctoral students or is it just like oh it's another student that I'm working with? It's another student. Now I treat them I treat them all the same, and I start my doctoral students at the freshman level for the things I feel are important. So I want to make sure every student has everything I know about pedagogy and playing. So I. If there are things that they didn't get at other schools that I think are important, mm-hmm. it doesn't take them long, maybe half a semester, but they're going to do my snare routine, they're going to do my, these are my mallet warm-ups, they're going to, this is how I approach timpani and do all that. And they seem to really enjoy that. I like it having the doctoral students, we have three right now, mm-hmm. and I like it because we don't have to certify them as we do master students have to get 18 hours before they can officially be instructor of record for a course. Mm, And so the doctoral students, having had the masters, we can sign them up as part-time instructors and they can do the second steel band, the second percussion ensemble. Even though we can finally certify masters, we have to write letters and get resumes. So that's kind of nice about the doctoral students. Mm. Now, I don't, you know, I think they're all the same. And of course, I learn as much from my students as they do from me. And it's, it's not how it's supposed to be. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a great interaction. And what's fun about teaching is I'll come up with something new 
For instance, here's something I learned a couple of years ago teaching a student how to simultaneous dance on timpani. Mm-hmm. Um, he was having a trouble, and so I said, well, let's put the mallets down and just use our fingers and try to finger simultaneous dance. And you can hear the slam much clearer and cleaner. And I never thought about that. Hmm. So that's the cool thing about teaching is that you stumble on new teaching techniques. Yeah. The time. This is PowerPoint, for instance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How much of a sigh of relief it must be for you who's been teaching as long as you have that how easy it is to do video now in classes. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's off your iPhone. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No projectors, no screens, you know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, technology... I'm old enough that I can't keep up with it. Luckily, sure. I have students that keep up with it, and you know they know how to hook stuff up. But uh, yeah, but it has made things so different. And the whole YouTube thing is gone. You know that's what's crazy. You yeah. know, sign a person a, a piece of music and they YouTube it, and sometimes they watch the right performance, and sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just assigned a really cool marimba solo to one of my really good undergrads and I told him I don't want you to listen to it find it watch it I said treat it like a book you're going to read it you're going to learn the music old fashioned not off of a recording I want you just to learn it and then once you've learned it go watch it or hear it he was shocked that he would have to do that have to just you know learn it the way I used to learn right yeah yeah I always like telling students the whole the um you know, the pull the cassette recorder. It's like your song comes on the radio and you're like, Oh my gosh, I got to record it. And then you hit, and then you have the DJs talking over the, the first part of the front part of the song. You're like, shut up. I'm one of the teachers right before the verse. Yeah. They have no idea what I'm talking like, what any of that is. <laughs> yeah. They have no idea, but I do play, I have some records that, um, I, I still use in my lessons that they haven't been like Gordon Staff's first record, you mm-hmm. know, that if, if I'm doing some, you know, Bach partitas or um, even, you know, some of the Musser A flat, A2, whatever, you know, that's a good recording. Yeah. And I have it on CD. If you can't find it on Spotify, and I got a turntable and there's Gordon playing it. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ready for some random ass questions? Of course. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, before we even get to that, um, talk a little bit about. Uh, Josh Armstrong, and again, feel free to use swear words as many as you want. <laughs> I know you're good friends with Josh. Yeah, yeah. And uh, no, we had a great time together, you know, Josh, and we would kid a lot, and he didn't know how to take me for years. <laughs> no, he's probably told you stories. He didn't know how to deal with Professor Shin for years because I always had an eye out for him in ensemble. And there were a few years when he didn't practice enough, and I called him out in percussion ensemble once. And because I want, I wanted everybody to give 100%. And Josh goes, I'm just, all I got is 91%. You know, all I got is 91%. So I used to call him Mr. 91%. You know, um, we had a good time. He got serious during his master's here. He yeah. got serious during his last couple of years. He'll tell you his first two years he was not serious. <laughs> right? I think he did tell me that during the yeah. during our interview. And he, didn't, he never took from me until his master's. He, mm-hmm. he took with uh, Lisa. All during his undergrad, but we had a good um, a good time during his masters, and he took it very seriously. 
which is why he got into good grad schools and why he's been, I mean, he's serious and he's, I'm yeah. proud of Josh. Yeah, yeah. A super job at um, Delta State. Yeah. Um, really great. Yeah, but we had a good time. I don't know what to tell you. I don't have any, you know. <laughs> I I used to be on him a lot about smoking. Oh, he, yeah. But he's, he's quit and now he's, Got another life-changing situation, having the new baby, and that there's nothing. That's going to be great for him. Um, so I just I look forward to following his career. Yeah, yeah. The one thing you said though is he didn't know how to handle you. Uh, what, it, what it was like? Just like the interactions were weird, or what? No, no. I mean, you know, I would joke um, sometimes, and he didn't know if I was joking or not. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, for whatever reason, you know, freshmen and sophomores are a little afraid of Professor Shin until they get down a one to one and they know I'm just one, you know, we're all the same. But that's how it goes, you know, and so you can use that a little bit, you know, you can see the fear in these young people's eyes. And, and when you say something that's kind of funny, <laughs> you know, yeah, they're, they're looking around doing the, is yeah. that, am I supposed to laugh at? Anyway, so, um, but we, we had a good time. Yeah. It takes a while. I mean, look, I've been here 36 years. Yeah. You know, I have a presence in the building. Right. So it takes them a while to, you know, relax a little bit um, and be themselves, but not too long because they, they know that I'm on their side and, um, I want them to be as successful as they want to be. So, Yeah. yeah, but I know I don't. But I do joke a little bit in Percussion Ensemble. Percussion Ensemble, I got moved to Fridays um, when we hired um, our band director of band. She wanted my Monday slot, and I acquiesced. Mm-hmm. So I do Fridays from 4 to 5.30. Mm. We call it happy hour. And, <laughs> and, and actually, it's actually fun now. Now, I don't want to, I'm like the last guy in the building. I've been here 36 years. I've been a full professor since 1998. I don't want to be, you know, up here on a Friday afternoon until 5.30, sure. but I am, because that's our slot. That's where we got the big space, yeah. and we do it, and we make the best of it, and we, we have a good time, and um, once they get in there and they see how we interact, they still, you know, need to come prepared, and they do. I think students know that for both Doc, as they call her, mm-hmm. uh, preparation is key. Do you have any uh, um, Alan Teal stuff to that you need to get off your chest <laughs> now just when i used to um you know i listened to you know part of your podcast with him and yeah. um it's pretty funny you're talking about the blocks and i remember the blocks and i'm five foot eight teal is six eight and a half yeah and everybody called me one of my other nicknames is big al and they still call me big al and they called him a little al because you know right. hey I'm, I'm the director of profession. <laughs> Yeah, he's my PA, so yeah. he was little. I was big out, but I couldn't hardly. Um, he was difficult to teach marimba to because if I were going to demonstrate something, I had to do this. You know, the blocks came up to my chest. I was like, I was at a the counter at a restaurant. You know, my <laughs> take your order. You want fries with that? <laughs> so that was pretty funny. Um, in that green van, we used a lot. Oh yeah, yeah, and my kids. Um, back in the day when I were kids and stuff, we had the students over a lot. We would, we would play volleyball um, every Sunday, um, all the percussionists, and have social time. And, 
back when the program was small a little bit. But um, yeah, and Alan and I we talk once a month still. So, you know, this is he graduated. I don't remember eighty four, eighty five. He came in eighty three. He was my first teaching assistant, by the way. Mm. Numero uno, my first one. And um, so I, he has a special place in my heart, you know. And uh, he was there at the beginning when we were building, you know, and attracting students and things. So. Did he ever give you a, a special Alan Teal sweater vest? Uh, <laughs> we both wore sweater vests in those days. Oh, yeah? We were, yeah, and I don't know. No, yeah, I remember he had those. I had those, too. I wore, I wore those a lot of cool-looking. At least, my, I'm sure my kid's side was pretty tooly. You know, you look like a tool dad. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah, we, I think we all wore sweater vests then. Awesome. But Alan was, uh, yeah, he's a great musician. You know, I think he was a three-year All-Stater on Timpani, mm. a small town in Tulia. That's impressive. Um, and, um, yeah, it was very good having him as a TA. And I was already, you know, my contact hour teaching was already too much in my second year, third year, that, you know, again, we had Alan, my one TA, and then I had, as he said, Ray Dillard, I didn't come down one day a week and teach 12 students. But he was teaching like, you know, ragtime xylophone and tabla and, and some specialty things um, to some of my majors that wanted to do that. And he taught some overflow too. Great. I've been very blessed. Let me just say, I feel very blessed in my life. Um, even with the ups and downs of life, you know, my wife passing and I'm dealing with prostate cancer, as you may or may not know. Um, but I, I, I still get inspired by people and things, and I'm so happy to be here. Um, this is going to be a great job when I retire, um, and probably be in, be in a couple of years. Um, so everybody keep their eye open. So we got great equipment. Mm-hmm. It's Texas. We got great students in Texas. There's plenty <laughs> to go around. Right. And just, all the schools are full yeah. of good players. <laughs> That's great. All right, let's get to the, the more random of the random questions. Okay. All right. What is the most impractical item of clothing you own? Impractical. Impractical. Wow. Well, I, I don't know if this is clothing or not, but um, I, I just recently cleaned out a drawer and found some goggles that I bought when I played racquetball that I never wore. Oh, all right. That's pretty impractical. I never worn them. I think I'm through with racquetball. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good. Well, you know, racquetball, you can kind of play that whenever. It's, a, it's yeah. kind of a good sport for that. I had a sleeveless, uh, you know, Captain America shirt once. I think that's kind of impractical today. You know, I don't think I'd wear that. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if they did, how? Oh, yeah. I got mail last night, um, actually, um, at the Friends of Music event. Mm-hmm. Um, when I play timpani and I'm on my stool in the big hall yeah. in the symphony where I've been timpani 35 years. And when I'm, let me see if I have some malice. Oh, they're over there. But anyway, when I can't rest, I sit like this. My malice is sitting like this. And, and so they all have that impression of me, very stoic. Mm-hmm. You know, just, you know. What am I going to do? I mean, I'm counting rests. Right. You know, 100 rests, you know, and so I, I cross my arms and mm-hmm. 
holding my mallets. I'm just relaxing stoically. And so they do that. And yeah, you know, they'll do impressions of us on Halloween sometimes. Oh, yeah. Like we dress. Um, they, they have a big kick out of that sometimes. <laughs> Kids, yeah. So have, did, have you noticed uh, um, with the Tiffany thing, have you seen students – do it like sitting in your posture looking and you've like looked at them and like kind of freaked out a little bit or? No, no I think that they're, they're they're afraid to do that <laughs> <laughs> these are the patrons mostly you know the right. patrons that are uh, talking about that but we do have a number of students that we have a student rush we can go for five dollars and uh, we always have five or six students um, that come to the concerts which I think is great yeah reading is very important so I, I like to read a lot what uh? What poets are you most uh, interested I, in? There's a poet named Stephen Dunn, D-U-N-N, who he's won some Pulitzers. Um, love him. He's kind of a modern poet. Okay. And so that's one that people should check out. He's, he's edgy. He's really great. Yeah. Awesome. Pick one of these. One of the most bizarre, funniest, or strangest moments in a performance that involved you. I got a couple, but they're from... Uh, Years ago, they're from high school. Okay, you hear those. that's fine. Yeah, and these are ones I still tell at band camp. And this, oh, okay. I did. I just did my 40th tech band camp, and I still told my these two stories, and the kids love it. I think they come back for the stories, <laughs> much more than for what I know about percussion. They don't sure. care about that at all. Yeah. But you know, Professor Chen, let's hear that story again about when you were in high school and you did this and that and the other. So one, this is a true story. I'm I'm at Hickman. Mm-hmm. And this is probably my senior year. Uh, we're playing Wagner's Tristan and Isolde. And it's a um, transcription. It's great. It's hard. Mm-hmm. And there's not much percussion, but there's five important cymbal crashes. I'm playing cymbals. I was holding the cymbals incorrectly, like my teacher at Mizzou. This is a good cymbal story. I'll be quick, though. Okay, so I'm holding them like this. Where I had a lot of control, using the right angle of attack. Yeah. But if I'm cupping the bell, they sound horrible. Yeah. You know? And we had some old, big Zildjians that were really thin. And a couple of times in rehearsal, one of them did turn inside out. Mm-hmm. Could have been incorrect playing, could have been playing too loud. Right. There were big crashes. And actually, it was a very emotional piece for me. It was a great piece of his Spotner. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so when they did, of course, my percussion buddies in the section in high school liked that. Because they're sitting around doing nothing. So yeah. we would put it on the floor. We'd put our feet on the edge. We'd pop it back out. Yeah. Well, it happened a couple of times where we didn't have time to pop it out. I had crashes coming up. And so in rehearsal, I got down on one knee and crashed it off of our floor. Mm-hmm. It sounded pretty good. I had a good angle of attack. Mm-hmm. I learned from that experience. I could actually teach and practice crashing off of a carpeted floor. <laughs> but when we went to contest... I did not want that to happen at all, but that happened. I turned one inside out at contest in Mexico, Missouri, or whatever. <laughs> and I got down on one knee and very seriously made good crashes off of the floor for the, the next two or three, and the judges raved about it. <laughs> that, that percussionist sure did have some poise. And all that, and they didn't had no idea I'd been practicing for months, you know, on this. <laughs> So that's one. And the other story is we're playing Fiddler on the Roof. And at Hickman, these musicals were huge. In fact, the Tevias went on to being big stars. One of them ended up being the executive producer for Touched by an Angel. He wrote all those series. Um, he was a great musician. 
And um, so we're, we're playing now, playing percussion. Uh, Earl Coleman, who's a famous Mizzou grad, um, singer, violinist from the old days. He was our Hickman at the time, Hickman Orchestra Director. He's conducting. I'm playing drum set, and I have a set of old Deegan Bells set up on two chairs. That I'm playing, you know, because I'm doing the whole in the pit thing. And really, wasn't in the pit. We're in front of the stage. If you know Hickman, I don't know how it is now. So I'm playing, and I have to run around to play the bells. And during If I Were a Rich Man, mm-hmm. I run around and I kick the chair out from under the bells. <laughs> this is during a performance. Yeah, and I see them go. They hit this linoleum floor, and old Deegan Bells, a lot of times, they're not even attached. He's, the bars weren't even attached, and they bounced forever. And, you know, If I Were a Rich Man. Crash boom! It's like money coming from heaven. <laughs> and they, they were on the floor, and, and really, and the next day I didn't go to school, and I was actually had a bad cold. Everybody thought I was embarrassed. I wasn't embarrassed, but the sun does rise, and everything was fine. But those are the two, and nothing crazy. I'm trying to think. Um, No, no, I haven't had anything really crazy happen um, in my older life. Um, <laughs> but those that was enough to get oh, my yeah. attention. Yeah, that was enough. I mean, did you – were you like scram- Were you like on the ground scrambling trying to pick all these pieces up or did you just leave? Oh, I went through an mission. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I felt horrible. <laughs> I apologize to our star of the show. <laughs> I mean, everybody thought it was kind of funny. You know, that's how that goes. Yeah, right, of course. As upset as the performer, you know, yeah. they never. Differently, what's your favorite Beatles song? You know, as a kid, I had a piano in my bedroom in the basement. I used to play Hey Jude a lot. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you can't go wrong with Hey Jude, though. I, I was in a Beatles cover band. We played obscure Beatles, and I love the Beatles. I have the Beatles, you know, that white book that has all the transcriptions of yeah. every Beatles tune. I mm-hmm. got the Beatles channel. Um, our bass professor is a Beatles freak here. He teaches a class in Beatles. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many. Um, my band would play the other side of Abbey Road. Okay. And so that second side of I came in through the bathroom window all the way through the end, and, and including the big window solo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like all those tunes. Um, yeah, there's so many. <laughs> but I'll say Hey Jude. Yeah, yeah. McCartney finally came to Lubbock. And Lisa and I got to go. Oh, nice. we've been talking about it for years because Buddy Holly, who's from Lubbock, mm-hmm. influenced the Beatles, the Crickets. They got their name, you know, the Beatles got their name from that idea of the Crickets. Yeah. Holly, and they listened to a lot of Buddy Holly. He finally came and played the Sold Out concert. And it was fantastic. You know, I love his drummer, Abraham Lavorio. Oh, yeah. Junior. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll go with Hey Jude. Did, did could you were, were you singing in the cover band? Were you part of the singing? Were you hitting the screamer note at the at the top? Oh, of no, we, were, we had four great singers, so I didn't have to sing. And and I sang one tune once by a group called War, which we played a lot of War to this. Was oh yeah, yeah. Slipping into darkness, and I tried to play and sing. Was not good at it. No. Um, but later in life, about five years ago, I took some uh, vocal lessons because I, I did a lot of um, CD producing in the 90s of jazz singers. Mm. And so um, I just wanted to learn more about it. I got a good ear. I always had vocalists in all my bands. And so uh, now it's jazz singing. So, you know, I'm into that quite a bit. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Lastly, 
What is name? What's one piece of art? Whether it's music, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, what have you, has impacted you the most recently? There's a couple things, and I had actually wrote some things down that I think would be fun to share with people if I can find what I wrote <laughs> um, in here. You know, something. Gosh, there's so many things. Speaking of podcasts. Um, I listen to This American Life quite a bit. Do you mm-hmm. ever listen to that? I, I not regularly, but I've listened to a number of them here and there when I something's of interest. Yeah, and so um, I'm going to name a handful of things that I would love to share with your viewers that have affected me um, personally that I that I love. Um, so um, I just wrote a book called "You Don't Have to Say You Love Me" by Sherman Alexie, who's a Native American. Mm-hmm. And it's a very powerful book. And I, I'd read his poetry and some of this stuff years ago. Um, this just came out. Highly recommended. Very thought-provoking. Um, very touching. Very new grow as a person having read it. Mm. Um, I'm big on um, concepts of kindness. And so uh, a book I like is um, called Congratulations, by the way, some thoughts on kindness by a guy named George Saunders. Oh, yeah. He, yeah, and this was like... Um, his uh, commencement speech and he talked about treating a girl really poorly back in sixth grade and it's still bothering and so he just gave this speech and it's powerful about how we treat people Mm. um you know i just saw this and this was powerful to me um recently and i don't know todd well but todd meehan at baylor just did a little it's not a podcast he was talking to the so institute but he couldn't be there because he he's had colon cancer dealing with that and the speech he gave this power I need to tell Tom that if he ever listens to this he'll hear that Luke Drum. yeah yeah uh, and uh, it's powerful about how we live in the world that is something that everybody should check out there's a podcast um, that I like called S-Town that oh, fascinates I, me have you heard that I haven't I, I, it's like on the list of things to listen to you have got to hear that from top to bottom it is crazy yeah Engaging. S town stands for shit town. Yes, I, that I know. <laughs> we can say that on this podcast, yeah, can't we? It gets okay. a, I, I have an E rating on it for uh, explicit language if it shows up. Okay. Um, there, there's, there's some music I'm just going to throw out. You know, as I listen every day, mm-hmm. something really attracts me. Um, so for the last couple of years, um, I've been listening to a group called Trio Sense from Germany. I'm, jazz trio is kind of my thing now, piano trio, and I play one in town that we had a regular gig. And so we do a lot of covers of this band, Trio Sense. Mm-hmm. So I just urge everybody to check it out. It's a German trio, it's really uh, a great band. I just found a big band that I like, um, and it's called, um, the album's called Let It Be Told by Julian Arguelles. He's the uh, Saxon arranger. His brother Steve plays drums, and it was—I found it to be powerful. I've been listening to that, like their first cut, kind of gets me going for the day. Um, so this is for the percussionist after. We've had Bill Douglas in a number of times. Who's from Colorado, where he taught um, at—I forgot the name of the Buddhist school—but um, he's a composer, pianist, bassoonist. And he wrote a piece that was arranged for both um, Doug Walter's CU group and my group called Feast. You get it at a, um, 
from a publishing company called Really Good Music, which is a great publishing company that's pretty obscure. Okay. Your students will love it. You will love it. It's difficult. It's fun. Audiences go crazy. It's not played very often. Mm-hmm. People need to buy that and play it. Right. And listen to, we got a really good YouTube performance of that with our bassoon ensemble, our percussion ensemble, and Bill playing piano. I urge you to, and he's a great guy to be. He's 70 now. Bring him in. He does a whole rhythmic um, vocabulary thing. He has these etudes that are so difficult. Yeah. It's so cool. And finally, um, if you haven't heard of the Bad Plus, that's a trio. Oh, yes, yeah. Well, they're recording at the Rite of Spring. It's inspiring. Oh, wow. It's in a piano trio. And so it sounds like the drummer and the bass player are just looking at this piano score and adding the parts. In the, in, anyway, if you like the Rite of Spring, and who doesn't? I mean, listen to this piano trio. Put on the headphones and take a, a long walk and hear that. It's powerful. So those are things that um, inspire me, and um, there's more, but that's that gives people a few things to check out. Great. All right, we're all done. Pete, I enjoyed it. Um, Thank you need, so much. You know, I come to Columbia, which is rare these days, but we'll have to get some coffee, and I need to catch up on your life and your new position and what's yeah. happening at Mizzou, and congrats. Thank Mizzou you. is near and dear to my heart. I know. I'll still be. <laughs> Um, uh, I'm proud to see all the progress and tell Julia and Megan hi. Yeah, for sure. All that. And um, I need to catch up on your end of things as well. But thank you for your interview. Yeah. You know, you're the Anderson Cooper of the Percussion Podcast. (laughs) 